Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are returning to Iran, where a lot seems to be going on at the moment. There are so many Iranian stories coinciding that it's almost difficult to keep up with them. On the one hand, we're seeing uh, the Iranian Islamic Republic withdrawing from uh, more commitments that it made under the 2015 nuclear deal. At the same time, uh, there's a debate raging in Washington about whether it is time to do a deal with uh, Tehran or whether the policy of maximum pressure is working very well and should be uh, taken to its logical conclusion. This is mirrored by uh, another debate in Iran between hardliners and people who are more interested in dialogue. And in the middle of all this, Emmanuel Macron has been pushing for a grand bargain between the US and Iran, uh, something which came to light quite dramatically at the G7 summit in France a couple of weeks ago when uh, there was a surprise visitor in the form of the Iranian foreign minister, uh, Jawad Zarif. And between now and the meeting of the UN General Assembly in mid-September, there's lots of talk about a deal and a massive uh, new credit line being opened up and funded by Europeans which will take some of the pressure off from Iranian sanctions. But this is only possible within the context of a wider uh, detente between uh, Washington and Tehran. So to help us make sense of all of this, we are very lucky to have Ellie Garen-Meyer, who is the deputy head of our Middle East and North Africa program and our expert on all things Iranian, and Julian Barnes-Dacey, the head of the program, who can help to put these things into a bigger regional context. So, Ellie, why don't you tell us what's going on? Yeah, right, Mark. It's been a busy um, couple of weeks running up to the G7 meeting and afterwards. So, essentially, where we're at is that over the summer, the French government at very high level from President Macron himself taking leadership on this issue has been making extensive outreach to Tehran to see how they could, first of all, persuade Iran to go back into full compliance with the nuclear deal. Secondly, to cool down tensions uh, that we've been seeing transpire, particularly in the Strait of Hormuz over the summer months. And thirdly, to see if the Europeans can create a platform, pave way for some sort of U.S.-Iran talks, because it's become clear now to everybody that for the current regional security to improve, uh, Iran and the United States need to sit down and hash out some sort of a new agreement, whether it's on the nuclear deal or on the regional issues. So these three goals are quite ambitious. Um, and I think um, from my conversations with uh, folks in Paris, uh, they know that this is a you know real challenging task that they've set for themselves. But nevertheless, right now, the, the French initiative is the only game in town 
in terms of mediation. And it has managed to create over the last few weeks a space for cooling of tensions between the U.S. and Iran and a kind of momentum for political progress. Now, what we've seen happen in the last few days is that Iran, despite the progress that they've seen with this uh, French initiative, has basically said they're going to move into the third phase of this non-compliance with the nuclear deal. And they've stated that they are going to remove all the restrictions on their research and development into their nuclear program. Now, we're not exactly sure what that means in practice. And Iran has written a letter to the EU high rep, Federico Mogherini, saying that Iran will liaise with the International Atomic Energy Agency in the coming days to lay out exactly what their plan is. So for now, the Europeans are going to wait and see what the IAEA, this international body's assessment of Iran's behavior is. It's certainly in contravention of the nuclear deal, as Iran's previous steps in the, in the last two phases have been. But again, what we're seeing is quite small steps from Iran that are very calculated and aimed to be reversible quite quickly if there is political progress. And I would just end by saying that Iran's President Rouhani, who's been in countless hours of um, telephone calls with President Macron over the last few months, has highlighted that he's, you know, he's seen progress in the French initiative, which I can go into details later, but that it basically hasn't come fast enough. They'd always promised that by um, this deadline on, on uh, 5th, 6th of September, they were going to move into their next phase of non-compliance. And I think that we're seeing the Iranian government take the minimal steps possible within, within the nuclear deal to both appease the hardliners at home that want a more confrontational Iran, but also leave enough space open for the French president to continue this diplomatic effort. So, Julian, do you want to lay out how this fits into the regional context? Because for the first few years of the Iran nuclear negotiations, there were very strong attempts made to try and ring fence the nuclear file from all of the other conflicts that were going on in this region. But that's becoming increasingly difficult. And there's a lot of engagement from not least from Israel in the American political debates at the moment, as well as kinetic attacks in the region. Sure, Mark, and thank you. Look, I think it's worth just saying at the outset that one of the reasons that, that, that Trump and his team came in and that the Israelis and some of the regionals opposed the JCPOA from the outset was that they felt it wasn't doing enough on the regional front and that there needed to be a wider deal that squeezed back on kind of Iran's regional positioning. And hence, the maximum pressure campaign was not just about getting concessions on the nuclear front, but also a regional retrenchment that actually would bring the Iranians out of Syria, stop them meddling in, in, in regional countries as it was seen in, in DC and, and, and Israel. There's a narrative issue at stake here in terms of the maximum pressure campaign, because the Iranians have clearly been involved in an increasing set of incidents right across the region over recent weeks. You've had even months, you've had uh, the naval clashes in the Gulf of Hormuz, you've had uh, Israeli strikes on Iranian assets in Syria, uh, Lebanon, and then for the first time, Iraq, all indicative as, as far as, as, as Washington and, and Israel saw of increased Iranian meddling in the region. And you've also seen an iranian link group in Yemen launching missiles to Saudi Arabia. So things have been heating up. But I think what's quite interesting is that 
you know, is this a sign that maximum pressure is working or is it a sign that it's failing? So there's, there's one narrative, which is this is Iran on the back foot. It's lashing out. It's feeling the pain. You know, you need to keep squeezing. And these are all the signs of, of an Iran that is, it, it's got its back against the wall and it's really struggling. The other narrative, which I think is, is increasingly or, or is, is, is accepted more from a European perspective, is, is look, not only is Iran reversing itself on the nuclear deal, but maximum pressure is actually having the exact opposite result that we wanted to see in terms of Iran's positioning in the region. In that, as they've been squeezed, as the sanctions have been mounted, as a sense of a of a desire to really punish Iran for internationally, Iran has felt a need to demonstrate its own assertiveness, create some leverage of its own, not necessarily by by just lashing out, but in a more kind of stru- structured, strategic way by asserting itself in the region. So we have this very dangerous environment at the moment, whereby the regional situation and the nuclear file are increasingly interlinked. One form of pressure is playing out, creating tensions on the other. And of course, it makes it very hard to, to manage the two separately. It becomes increasingly hard to say, look, we need to do a nuclear deal when there's a risk of major escalation in a regional front, when British ships are being seized, when the Israelis are bombing in, in Iraq. So it's an incredibly messy situation. And I think from a European perspective, the the priority at the moment is just to somehow box back in the nuclear agreement, take that as a win that it was, and to hope to use that as a launch pad to to then de-escalate some of these regional tensions and hoping that that if you can do stuff on the nuclear file, relieve some of the economic pressure, some of this regional pressure will, will fall away. But I mean, it's an incredibly tense situation at the moment and things could easily spiral out of control in a way that brings everything towards a, a very bad place. So Ed, why don't we go into the kind of heart of what this offer is, which Macron is making, because it seems to be quite a big change in the focus of, of European efforts on the financial front. For a long time, Europeans were looking at whether we could set up mechanisms to, to help European companies barter with Iran. There was Instex was the big hope that people had, which would allow trade to to continue but then it's taken a very long time to get that off the ground what is this new credit line that macron is trying to launch how big is it how does it work how is it funded what are the benefits to iran i'll just start off by having one uh, point on instakes in that essentially this mechanism for trade with iran has taken far longer than anybody expected it to there's been a number of hurdles, whether it's technical or indeed political, given the backdrop of geopolitics has been unfolded over the last few months. And so it's clear that for now, Instex is not going to be enough or come into operational stage quickly enough to stop Iran from withdrawing from the agreement in, in these concurrent stages. And also it hasn't been enough to really put a band-aid on Iran acting out in the on the regional scale. So I think what we've seen is quite a huge degree of creativity here from from the French government. How does it work? This credit line package, which um, now it's become public, we're looking at figures of around $15 billion. As I understand it, and we haven't got the details of it, it's going to be released over a period of time, probably around four months' time. And... It's going to essentially compensate Iran for part of its losses in the sale of its oil exports due to the return of U.S. secondary sanctions since spring. And it's meant to essentially provide Iran with 
some much-needed cash injection into the government budget. Now, there are lots of factors to be considered here. First of all, the French are leading this, and as I understand, in close coordination with the E3 government, but it's not yet clear exactly who is going to be paying into this credit line pot. Secondly, the French and the Europeans are likely to want to have some sort of a oversight over how the Iranian government uses this money because they want to have a response, particularly to hardliners in Washington who are going to argue that this money is just going to be funneled into uh, the activities of Iran's Revolutionary Guard for um, problematic regional behavior. So it's not clear yet whether Iran if indeed the Europeans make this request of oversight over how this money is used, is even going to accept that. And that's going to create a lot of political debate inside the Iranian system of whether they allow Europeans to oversee how this money is used or not. And finally, we don't really know how much time this will buy us. So I've heard estimates that, you know, this sort of a package could take us up to the end of this year and Iran will come in back into compliance during that period. But after that time, we don't really know if the Europeans are going to be able or willing to extend yet a, a renewed credit line to Iran. I, I think the French hope is that within that period of time, there will be an opening for talks between the US and Iran for some sort of a bigger negotiation, which means that Iran steps back from continued uh, violations or breaches or non-compliance with this nuclear agreement. But again, we might get to a stage where the Europeans extend this credit line, Iran comes back into compliance for a few months, but there's no real breakthrough in the US-Iran channel, and we're back again at square one about what to do. Now, again, it might be that by that stage, this insect mechanism will have got off the ground, and that might help balance the situation. But there are a lot of unknowns about whether that will happen or not. So that kind of leads us into the the question of the US debate, where on the one hand, we have a president who loves making deals. That's his uh, signature brand as an international deal maker. But at the same time, a political class that is much more committed to to push back on Iran than they ever were on North Korea, and where some of the key figures have got an almost sort of religious commitment to the idea of containing Iran. That's obviously true of, of John Bolton, the national security advisor, who for many years has been talking about regime change and encouraging more and more aggressive policies, not just through sanctions and economic statecraft, but through actual military strikes. But also um, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, seems to be quite committed to having uh, a strong stance against Iran. And it's one of the, I think, building blocks of what might turn into presidential campaign at the end of the, the Trump era. Julian, how likely do you think it is that Trump will overrule all of the foreign policy professionals and the Republican political class and, and try and do a grand bargain with Rouhani in the way that he did with North Korea? I think, honestly, this is a million-dollar question that, that no one has a clue over. I mean, I think everyone is waiting for Trump 
to lean one way, Europeans hoping that it will be in the French direction, but but no one has a clue. I mean, I think he came out of a private one-on-one -on -one meeting with Macron at the G7, making giving a suggestion of, of, of a willingness to support this. But as you say, his backers, his supporters at home in the administration are fervently anti any lessening of pressure on Iran. Trump has to, to deal with them. He has to deal with a domestic constituent where the Iran issue plays out quite strongly. No one knows. I mean, does that pressure prevail or does a desire to, to make a deal and to use that ahead of the election prevail? The other thing, of, of course, that may be hanging over Trump is the recognition that as maximum pressure increases, it also risks two things. I mean, one is that actually Iran will start revving up its nuclear program again, and he will have to, to bear responsibility for that. But the other is that he could get sucked into some direct confrontation with Iran. I think we saw in June, when the Iranians downed a, a US drone, Trump was very close, encouraged by his advisors to, to launch military strikes on Iran. That could have quickly pulled the American into a broader regional conflict, something that, that Trump has said again and again he doesn't want. He wants to pull American troops out of the Middle East. So I think these are all of the issues that are hanging over him. But frankly, no one has any real sense of his thinking on this, what he really wants and, and, and what is going to be the, the strongest pull factors. I mean, Ellie may have a stronger sense from some of her conversations with Americans. I think that, you know, Julian's absolutely correct. No one really knows where Trump is going to come out of it. And I think one really interesting tactic that Macron used at the G7 was literally pulling Trump into a lunch behind closed doors, away from Bolton and other senior advisors to basically lay out the progress that he'd made with Rouhani and with Zarif in, in the days prior to the G7, and basically saying, you know, relating to him that Zarif was going to attend the G7, getting his green light for that. And afterwards, you know, when Zarif showed up at the G7, you saw the hawks in Washington going absolutely crazy and claiming that the French had thrown the, the American president under the bus here. But, you know, Trump came out in the, in the conference is very calm and cool-headed, and basically seemed to not really care too much about this credit line and, and seemed to say he understood why it had to be there. And I think you know, a really big question in Tehran at the moment is, is Trump genuine and sincere about wanting a deal or not? And some would say that if you look at Trump's presidency, everything he said he wanted to do, he's been doing, you know, whether that's ripping up the Iran deal, the, the outreach with Israel on, on move of the embassy to Jerusalem, moving out of the Paris Accords, making some sort of a deal with North Korea and dealing with that. I mean, he started, obviously, we don't have a deal with North Korea. So the question for Iran is, can they actually bring Trump into their orbit, like the North Koreans have managed to do, and at least prevent these sanctions from getting worse and maybe even opening up the economic space slightly by a more relaxed implementation by the United States on these sanctions. But, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, others inside Iran and even those within the moderate camp argue that, look, it's really not worth even engaging Trump because look around, he's not managed to make a deal really with anybody. And even if he's managed to make a deal, he keeps coming back and wanting more. And this will completely undermine some of the building block foundations of the Islamic Republic. Some of their thinking is, look, let's wait until the November 2020 elections. If Trump is reelected, then we can talk about whether we have a 
direct negotiation with the U.S. or not. But at this point in time, we could be dealing with, you know, only one year more of Trump. But we'll have to see inside Iran over the last few weeks. We've also been getting mixed messages about whether there could be some sort of a direct channel of talks between Iran and the United States. President Rouhani made one important comment during the time of the G7 meetings, which was to say and suggest that he would be willing to meet with anybody, and here the suggestion was Trump, if it was to advance the national security interests of the country. But the next day, he was completely lambasted by the hardliners for making that suggestion, and so he's had to walk back from that, particularly because so far, this credit line package hasn't been not close to ceiling yet. But Again, we have a couple of weeks left before the UN General Assembly, and there might be some interesting movement around this meeting, particularly if, for example, the French can persuade both Rouhani and Trump to join some sort of a multilateral meeting, for example, on nuclear security or maritime security. And that will be the first time that Rouhani and Trump could be in the same family photo, for example. And the French could sell this to, to Trump as look, this is the beginning of that talk and that deal making that you wanted with Iran. So give us space to provide Iran with the economic package so that it indeed doesn't escalate either on the nuclear deal or on regional files in, in the weeks ahead. So that's the positive scenario. What happens if this doesn't work out, if Trump in the end gets persuaded by Bolton, Pompeo, the sort of deep base of people who worry about Iran in the American system, maybe gets a phone call from Netanyahu as well. How does this develop if that happens? Are we going to see a perfect storm uh, taking place where you have escalation on both sides? I'll defer to Ellie in a sense on, on, on how and, and, and kind of how quickly the Iranians would, would push back on the, on the nuclear front. My assumption is that they would rev things up. I think Ellie's question about whether they wait for the next year's presidential elections in the US and see if a new president comes in before making any de- definitive position or, or taking a definitive position could, could be a key issue. What is quite worrying is how this could play out on the regional front. I think that is where much of this has played out. As the Iranians have been squeezed, we've seen tensions increasing in the region. Netanyahu, the Saudis in, in Yemen, I mean, the, the, they consider that the Iranians are stepping up their activities. We've had a, a number of incidents where sparks could have led to, to a wider escalation. And I think it's, it's much harder to control those incidents. I think the Europeans, are, and France in particular, is making a real effort to get in the middle of the nuclear front, seeing that as a wedge in to, to the wider range of issues. On the regional front, you know, Europeans don't have that same space. A lot of these actors are coming head to head. And if Trump does decide to double down on the policy of, of maximum pressure even further, doesn't consent to this French initiative, and effectively with that kills off any prospect of a political track, I think we should be quite concerned. But um, Ellie, I don't know if you think it's something that will go slowly or if actually kind of the presidential election could be a marker of which way it heads. Look, I think that definitely we're going to see Iran move forward every 60 days with reducing its compliance to the deal. Now, if this initiative with the French goes completely pear-shaped, I think that the next stage, which is going to be in early November, the announcement will be more drastic on the nuclear front, and they will keep escalating every two months. 
Now, I think the question is whether Tehran will want to trigger a quick collapse or even a potential withdrawal of this agreement in advance of the 2020 elections, or whether they will at each step take enough steps to keep the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese interested in keeping the deal together. My own prediction is that it's going to be the latter, that Iran will take small steps leading up to November of next year on the off chance that they might have a Democrat in office which would, which has already pledged to return to the nuclear deal and that might help refresh or restart the relationship in a, in a new framework with the United States. My own guess, and I, and I wrote about this over the summer quite controversially to some, is that you know we are de facto now in a JCPOA minus climate and if really there is no political progress from this branch initiative, I think the best outcome we can hope for is some sort of a JCPOA minus deal holding that prevents Iran from taking the more drastic decisions on, on its nuclear program and is enough to act as some sort of a check also on Iran's regional behavior because Europe will remain somewhat relevant strategically, not economically, but strategically as part of a longer term thinking of, of a bridge or a channel to the United States. But look, you're seeing Iran already really branching out and it's not putting all its eggs in this French basket at the moment. The Iranian foreign minister has been on a world tour, it seems, over the past few months, including China, Russia, much of Asia. And I think the Iranians will be keen that whatever steps they take, they're not put back into the isolation box and the pariah box that they were in the previous round of sanctions. And so Iran is really investing a lot in those political relationships at the moment so that it doesn't go back into that kind of black, black hole that it was under the Obama-era sanctions. But again, you know, one of the big risks for Iran is now that with these uh, continued acts of non-compliance, that it triggers the red lines of the E3 particularly, and that would lead to a snapback of EU, UN sanctions, and again, a real probably political isolation from the Europeans that could undermine any longer term efforts that they might want to undertake with the United States in the future. And also, as Julian mentioned, you know, on the regional playing field, we're in a very tense situation where even though President Trump didn't respond militarily to Iran's downing of the U.S. drone. We've heard lots of reports that there's been covert covert action against Iranian facilities, including cyber warfare on this front. And the U.S. president is very susceptible to the hawks that circle him, potentially to react much more forcefully if, say, in two months' time, one of the Iranian proxy links groups whether that's in Iraq or Syria or Lebanon, damages or undermines U.S. assets, including those of U.S. allies like Israel, Saudi Arabia. Inadvertently, Iran may find itself in a very hot escalation with the United States. So why don't we dwell for a minute or two on this whole question of the E3? Because one of the problems for the for Europe is that they have uh, European capitals, the E3, have ended up in this awkward situation of owning uh, an Iran nuclear deal, which the US 
has pushed away from and is trying to undermine with this policy of maximum pressure, which Iran is no longer complying with. And a lot of the case for sticking by Iran was based on the fact that Iran was in compliance with the deal. What are the real red lines for for Europeans in terms of Iran's compliance with the deal? Why have they been willing to live with Iran's non-compliance so far? What would Iran have to do to make Europeans feel differently about the, the sort of details of the deal? And then also, what prospects are there of Europeans being targeted in other ways? Because it's obviously been decided in Tehran that Europe is the the soft underbelly of the West, and there's much less dangerous to go after European tankers uh, than it is to go after American ones. That could be another thing which fractures the, the E3 unity. So on the E3 red lines, I'd say that's yet to be determined in a formal way. Certainly, there's nothing made public about it. But I would imagine that if Iran takes a mixture of actions that significantly drops the timeline from the current 12-month timeline of how quickly it could get enough fuel and material together to build one nuclear bomb, that would change the calculations and and definitely cross the red lines of the Europeans. So far, the steps that Iran has taken, as I mentioned before, really do fall short of that. So let me give you an example. Iran has been threatening to take up its level of enriched uranium from the level capped under the deal, which is 3.67%, to 20%. Now, for months and months, Iran has been threatening this. But actually, what we saw Iran take was a very measured step of, you know, just about 1% above that cap. So it still falls below 5% of enrichment levels. So again, I see Iran making, taking these steps so far to push and nudge the Europeans to act faster and quicker in providing this economic band-aid and also to signal to the Americans that they do have a maneuvering space to go well above the current threshold if indeed they choose to do so and they've given up on this political track altogether. I personally don't see Iran, unless there is a significant recalculation and reassessment after the UN General Assembly of taking these drastic steps in the next six months or, or at least not certainly till the end of this year, but they, they may well, as I said, Iran can have its unpredictable decisions as well, just like Washington has. And even from Mr. Zarif has recently said, if the U.S. is going to start being unpredictable, don't be surprised if Iran starts to be unpredictable too. What I found surprising, and I think it's a kind of sigh of relief, at least for me, is that everybody thought with Boris Johnson coming in, the U.K. was going to be the weakest link in terms of support for the nuclear deal and keeping this E3 position united. And what I've been hearing from folks in London is that actually the support for the JCPOA is a national security imperative and that backing will continue probably regardless of whoever comes into government in the UK, even potentially after Boris Johnson. And they are much more likely to take a European leaning on this issue um, than an American or Israeli leaning. Now, what will become different, I think, in the E3 approaches is on the regional file and how willing they are to be more assertive with Iran and pushing back Iran on the regional playing field and 
obviously the UK has gone in with the United States in terms of this maritime security mission, and they're very keen to get the other Europeans on board. The US Defense Secretary is also going to be meeting with counterparts in Paris in, in the coming days on this issue to try and persuade the, the French to join. And again, this might signal to the regional actors and also Iran that while the nuclear deal might stay in place, even in this kind of GCPOA minus realm, really if the disturbances on the regional file continue, even the overall geopolitics and diplomatic relations between Iran and Europe could sour because Europeans might be more persuaded over time to take this containment pushback strategy as it pertains to Iran in the region. But as I said, we've not yet seen that. And I think the Europeans, particularly the Germans and the French, remain very skeptical of the U.S. maximum pressure campaign and the, the instability that it's already caused in the region. Wow. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to come back as the story carries on evolving. I think that's all we've got time for today, except for our one final duty to the European public, in fact, the global public, which is our bookshelf segment. Julian, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I've been reading, or at least I was over the summer. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish it as we, we get into September. I'm struggling. been reading um, Crash by Adam Tooze how a decade of um, financial crisis changed the world. It's a great kind of epic 10 years on about the um, interlinking global financial crises and the kind of political effects that that's had across the globe. Fantastic. I love Adam Tooze. What about you, Ellie? I hope I didn't mention this in the July podcast. I just finished over the summer reading Yuval Harari's latest book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, which is a, you know, it's a fairly in-depth overview of every problem that we're facing at the moment and and the questions that are coming up and how we as a society and and world should start thinking about them. Uh, But, you know, he put a lot in there about the Middle East, about how Israel and Iran as two ideological countries view themselves in the world. I found it very interesting, some of the details that he went into and particularly as someone who's growing interest in in the world of biotech and AI. There are some really fascinating chapters about how we need to prepare our younger workforce for the challenges of employment ahead. So yes, I definitely recommend that book. Fantastic. And I have been uh, reading what feels like almost weekly reviews of a new great big biography of my favourite historian, well, Eric Hobsbawm by Richard Evans. And uh, I'm sure the book itself is fantastic, but the reviews are absolutely wonderful. And I'd like to recommend two in particular, which we will put links up to on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please let your friends and family and other acquaintances know about it on social media and by giving us a great big fat five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen to us on. But for now, from Ellie Garamaya, Julian Barnes-Dacey, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Yonatan Hakenbaish, and our editor is Marlene Ahida. Thank you very much, everyone. Thanks.